come on a journey with a cinephile. Wake up, sucker. We're thieves and we're bad guys. That's exactly what we are. listeners to episode 116 of journey with a cinephile a horror movie podcast as always i am your tour guide here of david garrett jr recording out of columbus ohio and on this episode here for you i have my new year new movie number nine as on this one i have featured reviews of scream this one here from 2022 and then the one that the randomizer selected was Spookies. I believe this is from like 1986, 1987, somewhere around there. And then also on this episode for you, I have mini reviews of Murders in the Rue Morgue. That is continuing on with my Trek Through the Twos, as this is from, I believe, 1932. And then I also have Satan Slaves from 2017. That is the remake that is on Shudder. And then I also watched Terrified, The Killing of a Sacred Deer, Super Dark Times, and a mini review as well of Upgrade. Don't really think there's anything else I need to get you up to speed with here, so let me get you over to a very brief break before I get into those mini reviews, and I hope you enjoy coming on this journey with me. Journey with a Cinephile. And for my first mini review this week is going to be Murders in the Rue Morgue. This is from 1932. It was directed by Robert Flory, and it came from the classic story by Edgar Allan Poe, while also being the adaptation from Flory, the screenplay by Tom Reed and Dale Van Every. John Hewson did added dialogue and then uncredited work from Ethel M. Kelly. This stars Bella Lugosi, Sidney Fox, and Leon Ames. This is a crime horror mystery romance film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 6.4 on IMDb and a 3.2 on Letterboxd, with the stops being a mad scientist seeks to mingle human blood with that of an ape and resorts to kidnapping women for his experiments. So this is a movie that I had sought out when I was looking for Universal films from the classic era. This is a bit lesser known, and it's from Poe, as I was saying, so that is what draws people into it without being part of the monster films that the company was known for during this era. This is my second viewing as part of my trek through the twos as well. 
So where I want to start is that I've read the Poe story this is based on, but I don't remember a whole lot of the details. I know it involves murders happening and that there is an eight behind them. This movie is a bit different from that. We are incorporating a mad scientist element that I don't believe was in the original story from what I remember. It isn't a long one, so you have to do a little bit different here and add a bit to flesh out the movie like we are getting here. So where I'm going to start is the villain and a deeper look at that. It is Dr. Mirkel portrayed by Bela Lugosi, and I think he's interesting. I agree with what he says in this movie during the show that he is kind of in charge of and what he says about evolution. He's outspoken about it, calling out audience members to burn him as a heretic as he stands by his beliefs, and that is, you know, what they used to do back in the day. I don't know if I fully understand what he's trying to do here as he's trying to combine the blood of this gorilla that is almost part human of Eric. Now, he's combining his blood with women that he's kidnapping. They probably didn't want to go more sexual route, and I did read a bit of trivia that there was quite a bit trimmed from this as it was deemed too violent. So I figured most of the audience would just buy what they're doing here from the time that it was made. I don't have a major problem, but it's something that I don't think is fleshed out as well as it could be. Now going from there, I'll go to Eric the Gorilla, who is looked at as the main villain from the story. Now the movie is interesting in what they do here. We have Gamora in a suit, and he has an uncredited role. He looked to be a famous makeup artist in the day and did a lot of work in suits that was uncredited. From what I remember from the story, this creature does the killing with a straight razor. He is supposed to be more intelligent than a normal ape. If you are following evolution, it would be the entity between gorillas today and humans. One that is smarter than the former, but still primitive in comparison with us. When faced with killing someone, Eric will, but I also don't think he knows right from wrong either, so it's hard to say it's murder. That associates with knowing that it's a crime. So that should be enough for the story as there isn't a whole lot to it. So I'll take this over to the effects. We are getting actual close-up footage of gorillas and apes. There is one time that I blink was a chimpanzee. I think that footage is real, which is fine, despite not syncing up completely. The man in the gorilla suit was good there. They added this footage in as well to make it work. I did have a laugh at the drawings that our main character of Pierre is doing and the medical textbooks that he's referencing. It is easy for the audience to understand what we are seeing, but a bit of the realism is lost there for me. Aside from that, I'd say the cinematography is solid. We get a cool shot of the main female lead of Camila on a swing when the camera is moving. That was something a bit different that worked here for me. Now the rest of the shots are standard, especially for the era. So the last thing I'll go into would be the acting. I thought that Fox was fine as our female lead. She becomes a damsel in distress, which is also standard for the era. Lugosi is good here as our mad scientist. I like Ames as the guy trying to get to the bottom of what is happening here. He is also smart, so I like him to be the counterpart to Dr. Mirkel. Now we have Roach is fine as the roommate and friend to our main character. And he adds a bit of comedy. I did have an issue with some of the others that were used in it as well. The comedy didn't land for me, and it felt like it was just padding time. Other than that, I thought the rest of the cast was solid. I did have a bit of an issue with some of the racist credits, with like Noble Johnson being referred to as the black one. I'm glad that at least they casted him in the movie, though. There are also some things with the sideshow, but I must be forgiven as this movie is 90-plus years old. I will give credit to Iron Eyes Cody as a Native American, Joe Bonamomo as a gorilla, and of course Gamora as Eric, even though they're all uncredited. So in conclusion here, this is a solid lesser talked about Universal Classic. I think we have an interesting adaptation of Poe's story that has added elements of a mad scientist. 
Not sure this is fully fleshed out, but there are some good ideas used. The acting is solid for me. Lugosi would be the best of the bunch. He's also a legend. I think we have some interesting things with the editing with archive footage and Gamora in a suit. Cinematography also did a cool shot in the movie using a swing. I did have some issues. There's a bit of racism that was standard for the era. Regardless, I'd say this is still over average, just falling below going higher than that for me. So my rating here for Murders in the Rue Morgue is going to be a 6.5 out of 10. And then up next for my second review, I have Satan Slaves. This goes by the original title of Pangabidi Sitan. This is directed by Joko Anwar, who also wrote this. And this is based upon the movie written by Ciswaro Guantama Putra and Noronio Pretino. This stars Tara Basro, Brunt Pellere, and Dimas Atia. This is a drama horror mystery film that is a co-production between Indonesia and South Korea. It is currently a 6.6 on IMDb and a 3.5 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being after the death of Rini's mother, something is disturbing her family. So this is a movie that I remember when it first came out to the United States. If memory serves, it was late in the year, and I didn't get around to checking it out during my year-end wrap-up. It was one, though, that I heard a lot of buzz about, so it went on... A list and then when it was selected by movie club challenge for the podcast under the stairs I was excited to check it out I'm now giving it a viewing as a part of the summer series for T puts with the second watch as well so this movie does a lot of things that really freak me out before delving too much into the story I must commend how this is shot it doesn't work for all films but this one I like the techniques used there are a lot of wide shots, some of them featuring mirrors at some point of it, or there are, you know, looking down hallways or up stairwells. I bring this up because the framing is, what we're actually watching is usually in the center, but for this movie, they're doing off-center. I don't know a lot about these techniques, but I know, like, the what you're usually supposed to focus on. There are things that happen without the characters knowing, or at least alluding to it. This is something that makes me uneasy, and I loved it. For this movie, though, we are getting a slow burn, but there are so many spooky things that are happening, so it keeps you interested. I bring this up because it can turn some people off. Despite how it is paced, it builds in a way where it doesn't take long to get to the haunting while making that tension rise. It is an interesting way to edit the film, which worked for me. We learn the root of all these problems could be stemming from the mother not being approved of by the grandmother. Now, the mother was a singer, which was not considered to be dignified. Steps were taken to ensure that she got in the good graces. There are just bits of information that we get that really keeps me wanting more. The ending and its implications are great as well. Now, I know this is a remake of a movie from 1987, so I am still interested in checking that out to fill in more of this backstory. Now, I'll admit, I'm being a little bit cryptic here as I don't want to give things away. The last aspect of the story is that this family isn't religious. When the Islamic Iam of Ustad asks, and they tell him that they don't pray he almost blames them and that's why he thinks that the things are happening as it must be easier in islamic to take over a house if that's what you're not doing we learn though that might not be the case as there's this creepy scene with a cult it has a rosemary's baby vibe as you don't know how deep things go and who's all involved this idea of not praying is something i want to pivot to a bit more here now the father scolds bondi who is the middle brother for being superstitious. What I like about this movie is that we're getting religion versus pagan beliefs. The family doesn't buy into either. There's a character of Bundiman who makes it seem like there's a crossover of the two, 
Ustad believes religion explains it all and that praying to Allah is more powerful than whatever is haunting them. This is something I liked seeing explored as I'm fascinated by religion. Now what helps is the acting as well. To be honest, I knew none of the actors coming in, but I thought they were good. Now Basro was solid as our lead. She has a nightmare early on, but for the most part, she doesn't believe anything supernatural is happening. She's had to take on the role of being a mother to her siblings, so she can't be freaked out. I've now seen her in two movies since this one, and I'm a fan of her and her acting abilities. And then we also have Aditya is solid as the guy who has a crush on Rini, but he truly wants to help. He's open-minded to what is happening while also being the son of the Eom. Now we have Arafian is a interesting character as he's more of a free spirit and outgoing to help the family of Tony. I dug him as a person. We have Anuns is interesting as I see quite a bit of me in him as a child and he is Bondi. He is getting into the supernatural and it's scaring him. He has been seeing a lot of the haunting throughout as well. Now the fear he shows felt believable. Adhiat is interesting as a character of Ian as he's fearless, but there's some changes that come over to his character that really enhance this one for me. thought the rest of the cast was good and rounded out the film for what was needed, especially with how creepy Lakshim looked, and that is the mother, and you know when she dies, she comes back as the specter haunting them. So let's move into the effects of this film. To be honest, they were done subtly and practically from what I could tell. If CGI was used, I really didn't notice it, and I'm down with that. A lot of the scariness for me is look at the ghosts that we are seeing. I've already said that the look of the mother when she comes back freaked me out. We get some other things that I like that work as well. I'm not going to lie, I felt uneasy the first time that I saw this. It wasn't as bad this time around, but it was still effective. I like what they say about the entity in this could be taken on the look of someone that they love to make it worse, and that makes sense. So the last thing I'll go into would be the soundtrack. For me, it isn't great, but I think it does some effective things with it. I like that Rini makes a discovery with some of her mother's records, and it goes back to a myth that we see about them. There is some chanting that makes me feel uneasy. It does do some things that really help to drive the tension with some of the music. We get a song that the mother sang that is played a few times. There is sound design with a bell. The mother would ring it when she needed someone. Now Tony and Rini are hearing it after she's dead, which is tense. Overall, I'd say that this was used well. So with that said, I'm mad at myself for missing this when it was for my year-end list. This film takes a lot of boxes for me. It presents its plight of the family, but the more we learn, the darker things get, and I'm down with that. There is a cult, which I always do love in horror movies. The acting helps this film, as does the pacing. It is edited in a way that builds tension throughout. The effects were done practically, which I could tell. And there's literally only one spot of CGI that I knew for sure, but I thought it was all good. Soundtrack helps build tension here as well. This film made me uneasy, which is a positive for me. I will warn you, though, this is foreign, and I had to watch it with subtitles on. If that's an issue, I'd avoid this. Now, I do know there is a dub version that is out there, so if that's more your speed. If not, this is definitely one that I would say give a viewing to, as I enjoyed it quite a bit. So my rating here for Satan Slaves is going to be a 9 out of 10. And then up next for you, I have Terrified. This goes by the original title of Eratados. This was written and directed by Damien Rugna. This stars Maximiliano Gogne, Norberto Gonzalo, and Elvira Onato. And this is a horror film that is from Argentina. This is currently sitting on a 6.5 on IMDb and a 
3.2 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being when strange events occur in a neighborhood in Buenos Aires. A doctor specializing in the paranormal, her colleague and an ex-police officer decide to investigate further. So this was a movie that I had heard about on a few different podcasts that I listened to. My interest was sparked as all the shows that brought this one up seemed to be quite high on it. On top of that, it was part of my 31 Days of Halloween Challenge that I took for my first watch. I've now given it a second viewing as part of the summer series for the podcast Under the Stairs. So before I actually get into the movie and its review or anything like that, there aren't a lot of films that really scare me, but this one got to me as it ticks a lot of boxes of things that personally affect me. I don't believe that there are ghosts or things to this nature that haunt people, but there are certain films that trigger the fear. I was nervous going to bed after watching this one the first time, and I'll get into why going forward, but I'll be also honest is that it also got me again for that second viewing. So what gets to me is people appearing behind others, and then our characters feeling the presence, but they don't know that it's there. I don't know why, but for some reason this unnerves me. The entities in this film are quite scary looking. If you've seen the poster, then you get an idea of how they look. It looks much creepier in the movie, to be honest, as well. So this one introduces something I really like about perspective. It can be as simple as looking at something one way, you can't see anything out of the ordinary, moving slightly over and looking again, and something's revealed. There are talks about alternate dimensions where these entities are coming from. I like that they describe it as two realities sharing the same space. The concept of not everything you are seeing as being real is something else, and it plays a lot into how this film concludes, which I also thought was interesting. One more part of the story that I want to delve into is I must give credit here to the Watsy Party Horror Show. They covered this movie, and they brought up that water is involved. With the second viewing, I see what they mean. Now, there's one of the investigators of Dr. Albrecht who does explain this a bit, and it's interesting. Water carries over this haunting. It might not actually be that, though, with things that I'll go into later. It is scary that something we need to survive could be a major part of our downfall as well. Moving from there, I do want to talk about the editing. This one has quite a few jump scares, and I'm not going to lie, at least two of them got me and made me call out. I don't normally fall for them, but what they do here is quite effective. I even knew one of them was coming the second time around, and it still got me. The running time isn't long, and it doesn't waste time getting into it either. It is building tension from the opening sequence to the end. I also like how the stories are all edited together. It feels like what we've seen in like the grudge films where we aren't getting it linear. We are getting different angles and we can piece it together, which is fitting for what this movie is conveying. I did have an issue with the final scene, but I'll get into that when I touch upon the effects. So then for the acting here, I thought it was solid. The people that we are getting that are haunted and they just look worn out, which I think is a good look. They can't sleep and whatever is bothering them is taking its toll. It is very believable. Now, Gioni as Captain Funes was good. He is tough in that and he wants to protect those around him. He shows fear though as well. Part of this is a medical condition that he has and he's also close to retiring. I also like Gonzalo Oneto. We also have Lewis as the investigators as well as our experts. We have Julieta Valina as solid as Alicia. I feel horrible for her and what her son has to deal with. I'd say that the rest of the cast rounded this out for what was needed. I did want to give credit to those playing entities as they were creepy for sure. As I alluded to earlier, the effects of this one I thought were good. There is a scene in the bathroom that was unnerving. The creatures in this movie are quite creepy as well. I don't think it's completely CGI, but I know it's touched up. There is a dead child and his look was very well done. 
all of this was amazing. I don't have much negative to say here. I will say, though, that the final image I didn't like, and that was the only moment of bad CGI that I could think of. There is another scene later in the movie, but it is quick, so it hides it. They did some things that were creepy, the blood looked good, and it made me feel uncomfortable with what they were doing with some of these effects. So now with that said, I think this is one of my favorite haunting haunted house films I've seen in quite a while. The story is creepy. We never really are given an explanation, which I found to be interesting. The concept of perspective and how all these neighbors are intertwined I thought was good. The acting helped me to bring this film to life. Effects seem to be mostly CGI, but they're used quite well. There was only one time that I didn't have any issues, and it wasn't that big of a deal. I will warn you that this is from Argentina, so I had to watch it with subtitles. If you can get past that, this is a successful haunting house film with some effective jump scares. I thought overall this was a good film in my opinion, so my rating here for Terrified is a 9 out of 10. And then up next I have The Killing of a Sacred Deer. This is from 2017. This is directed by Yorgos Lanthimos, who also co-wrote this with Iyifiths Filippo. This stars Colin Farrell, Nicole Kidman, and Barry Keoghan. This is a co-production between Ireland and the United Kingdom. This is currently sitting on a 7.0 on IMDb and a 3.7 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being Stephen, a charismatic surgeon, is forced to make the unthinkable sacrifice after his life starts to fall apart when the behavior of a teenage boy he has taken under his wing turns sinister. So this is a movie that I did a mini-review back on episode number 24, and what I really kind of noticed the second time around with the movie is that it's very atmospheric. The first thing that's probably the best part of the movie for me is the soundtrack. Now, we're getting a lot of classical-style music, but it's very sinister and unnerving, and I really kind of loved that about it. Now, I guess I should also kind of throw into here that uh, delve into the synopsis just a little bit more is that our main character here of Steven is faced with his family is going to die a slow, painful death where at first their limbs go numb and they can't walk anymore, and then they have to not be able to eat where it's to the point of starvation and then their eyes will start to bleed before they die now he has to make a decision of who to kill before that happens what i also think is kind of interesting about the atmosphere to get back to that is the dialogue it feels like the first language of this person is not english or they're taking a old story and just updating it without fixing the language and i mean ancient world type english just because how everything is relayed is just very robotic and Jamie was trying to read a book while I was watching this and she actually had to get up and leave the room because it was distracting and unnerving to her as well. But I think the acting is great across the board here. I think it's actually really solid. I do have to agree with Bo Ransdale about the character of Steven as he can't make a decision if his life depends on it. He won't take responsibility for things as there's actually an interesting conversation with him and his wife of Anna about how... A surgeon is never to blame for somebody dying on the table, which is not true. He blames everything on the anesthesiologist. Now, it's kind of funny is she also speaks with him, and he blames a surgeon, stating that it's never his fault but him, which just shows me that neither of these doctors can really take responsibility for things. I used to think the runtime was an issue, but I didn't this time around, as I just think this is an intriguing film that I can't recommend to everybody, unfortunately. I really like the allegorical tale that we're getting here with a difficult decision one man must make in punishment of something that he's done. When I say difficult, I mean pretty much impossible. The acting is good across the board, as I was saying, as it brings these characters to life, even if it is kind of odd with how they talk. 
The effects and how the movie is shot are both solid. The soundtrack is one of my favorite parts with how this made me feel. There's a bleak ending that was on point, and I enjoyed this movie overall. I find it to be good, but again, it is artsy, and if you like this, I think you'll enjoy these A24-type movies. If you don't, I would avoid this because I don't think this is for you. So just kind of get back to that as well. This is also an A24 film, as I was saying. So if you know the type of depressing vibe they give off, then you have an idea of what you're going to get here. So I've actually come up on my rating for The Killing of a Sacred Deer. I'm now at an 8.5 out of 10 for this one. And then up next for you, I have Super Dark Times. This is from 2017. This was directed by Kevin Phillips, and it was co-written between Ben Collins and Luke Petrosky. This stars Owen Campbell, Charlie Tehan, and Elizabeth Cappuccino. This is a crime, drama, horror, thriller film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 6.6 on IMDb and a 3.5 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being teenagers, Zach and Josh have been best friends their whole lives, but when a gruesome accident leads to a cover-up, the secret drives a wedge between them and propels them down a rabbit hole of escalating paranoia and violence. So this is a movie that I remember when it came out. I meant to see it as part of my year-end roundup, but I just ran out of time. It's one that went on a list of films to check out eventually, and it ended up being a podcast review as a trial run with Jake who I connected with through a horror movie podcast group, which is now SideQuest Podcast, and I'm now giving it a second viewing as part of the summer series for the podcast Under the Stairs as well. So this is another one that I was mad at myself for not seeing earlier, as I think there's some really good things here that you can talk about with the story as well as what it's signifying. In prep for my podcast conversation, I actually sought out the short film from Phillips that was made called Too Cool for School. It seems to correlate back in the fact that we're dealing with teens that are going through puberty, we're seeing them to try to become who they are while also trying to be cool, and it does seem like the same house that Zack lives in here in this movie. So then to break this one down, I will focus on our main character of Zack first. He's your normal teen. He defends Allison when his best friend of Josh is making inappropriate comments about her. Josh seems to like her, but just because she's good looking. There's more than that for Zack. Plus, he has more of a connection with her, and they've interacted more. When this horrific accident happens, he wants to protect his best friend, but the pressure of what happens is weighing on him. We literally get to see this through a nightmare. The right thing to do would have been going to the authorities, but I completely understand why they did what they did. They panicked and I can't fault them there. I've been in a similar situation in my life where I could have avoided it by going to my parents first. Instead, I might have made life much more difficult for myself and had to deal with the consequences. Then on the other side here, we have Josh. He would have been the one to truly get in trouble if there was trouble to be had. I don't think he's a psychopath, though, as it was an accident. I do think there's a feeling of inadequacy there. Through conversation, we get to see that his older brother is a Marine and his younger brother is a prodigy. I'm wondering if this factors in a bit into why he ends up doing what he does. The stress is weighing on him as well. But we see that when things turn bad, including with drugs and how things play out, he sees his opportunity to shine and takes it. He's made it into what he becomes. I don't think it was nature. Then the last two people I want to kind of go over would be Charlie and Allison. First, Charlie is a character that they don't really know all that well, but they know him through the character of Daryl, and he's ready to wash his hands of everything from the beginning. He's probably the smartest when it comes to getting away with anything, as he scolds Zach for coming to see him. Then we have Allison, who's much more interesting. She knows that Josh has a crush on her. She likes Zach, though. She is dealing with teen angst, through smoking cigarettes, weed, and sneaking away? Does this make her bad? Absolutely not. 
it just makes her a teen that is pushing boundaries. I do think this movie is showing us the loss of innocence. They're getting older, and being a teen normally can be tough. Adding on the knowledge of a tragic accident with what is already on their shoulders could be near unbearable, so I believe what we see here. This is also an interesting theory in regard to her and how things play out to make this even more intriguing. So I want to take a sex to the acting. I've already said that I've covered the characters themselves. I think everybody was casted very well in my opinion. All the teens feel and act like the characters are playing. It's almost to the point where I'm questioning if they're acting. It is even more impressive with how well they're portraying the tortured feelings that they're dealing with. Going along with this, it's tough being a teenager at times, so having that weight on your shoulders and not being able to share it with anyone but those around you, I was quite impressed overall. Now I'm actually going to combine the pacing, editing, and music all together here. The reason being is that we have an amazing scene where we're in the school office where there's a girl listening to a CD of techno music. Zach is hearing the ambient sound until it is loud enough for us to hear it. I thought that was a great use of sound and editing that together to shift us over to the party with Allison. The movie never got boring for me and if anything, it got my anxiety going which I can really appreciate for sure. The feeling of dread goes along with that as well which works in its favor. And the last thing would be the effects of the movie which are handled subtly. I like that the blood looks real, they hide things with camera angles which is effective. I don't necessarily think this was a bad move. It was there to drive tension but it's also for our imagination to run with things as well. The weapon in this movie is different and kind of sets it apart. I also feel like the late 80s, early 90s as well. The cinematography was solid in my opinion on top of all of that. So now with that said, I'm not going to lie, I really enjoyed this movie. This would be another one that I'm mad at myself for not seeing earlier. The concept of what these teens are dealing with is interesting, coupled with the idea of loss of innocence, transitioning into being adults, and trying to deal with all of this. The acting felt natural to me, which you don't always get from teens. Despite having a bit longer of a runtime, it never got boring to me. It built tension and a feeling of dread. thought the soundtrack fit, and coupling that with some transitions at times was solid. The effects were subtle in my opinion, which works just fine for what we got. I'd say this is a good movie and would recommend giving this one a viewing for horror and non-horror fans alike. So my rating here for Super Dark Times is an 8.5 out of 10. And then for my last mini review of this week is going to be Upgrade. This is from 2018. This is written and directed by Lee Winnell. This stars Logan Marshall Green, Melanie Vallejo, and Steve Danielson. This is an action sci-fi thriller film that I also consider to be horror. This is a co-production between the United States and Australia that is currently sitting on a 7.5 on IMDb and a 3.6 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being set in the near future, technology controls nearly all aspects of life. But when the world of Grey, a self-labeled technophobe, is turned upside down, his only hope for revenge is an experimental computer chip implant. So it was a film that sparked my interest, but wasn't sure how good it would be or if this film was horror or not. I saw that it was listed that way on the IMDb, so I decided to check it out. That first viewing was at the Gateway Film Center, and I'm now giving it a second viewing as part of the summer series for the podcast Under the Stairs. So I like the revenge aspect of this one. It is something that we can relate to, but this film takes it to another level. The computer makes him into a killing machine, and that is Grey, and he can fight with great skill. The investigation is interesting, and I think some of that is where the editing of this film comes in. It builds tension as more and more of the story is revealed. It is enjoyable him piecing together things and then breaking away from Aaron, who is the person who not only created this computer chip, but also installed it into him. I like how the film ends, even though some of the aspects were a little bit obvious. I didn't remember the full reveal, but I said it early into this rewatch, and I was right. Now, the final sequence is great, and I exactly how I would like the film to end. So, the first part here that I want to go to next would be technology. 
the first sequence that we get introduces us to the world through Grey. It feels like we're taking place in a modern time. We then get to see that his wife of Asha, when she comes home in a car that drives itself. The city that they're living in is high tech. Aaron talks about the computer that he is creating and how it will change the world. There are police drones that are watching for crime. There's also computer databases that are used in solving crimes. And then we also get to see this group that are known as upgrades. They have wires and biomechanical things inserted into their bodies. This makes for some cool things that play out here. So then the last part of the story I want to go into is using the idea of technology and how it can take over our lives. I explored this a little bit, but technology is a blessing and a curse. It allows us to do so much at our fingertips. This movie is also dealing with the idea that technology could take over if we allow it. Grey is leery of this. This isn't a new concept here. I mean, Terminator is like this, or even going into the horror realm more with Pulse. When this movie goes, I like quite a bit. Now, the ending is bleak, and that's something I'm always a fan of. Now, from there, I'll go to the acting. Marshall Green is great as our lead here. He plays such an interesting character in a world that is built around him. I feel horrible for him, and seeing him give up on life was depressing. I did find myself getting excited when he's getting his revenge, even though he is committing crimes in doing so. It is one of those things where you kind of wonder what you would do if you're in that position. I must give credit here to him as well as the axe robotic when Stem is in charge. This is a subtle thing that works and fits the character. I thought Vallejo was cute and her character was good. They also bring her back for flashbacks and other things to build the story. Then we have Gilbertson is good as a computer genius. He comes off timid and awkward, which is fitting for the character. Betty Gabriel was solid as the detective. I also found the villains to be good in their performances. I like that we don't get a great look at their faces, so Gray, as he's encountering them, we learn more. The rest of the cast I thought rounded this out for what was needed. I thought the effects this one were good. They are brutal, which I wasn't expecting that first time coming in. The blood looks good, and the effects for the gore look to be practical. The use of technology was also solid. I loved how the action sequences were filmed. They're not traditional and done with some solid effects. I thought this was a strong part of this movie. The sound design was something else that was good. It fit the scenes for what they were going for, and it helped to build tension. The score does have a techno feel to it, which keeps with the theme of the film and the world that they also have it set in. I also like Gray can hear Stem talking, but no one else can. It makes it almost seem like he has mental issues. That worked well for what this movie needed. So with that said, I enjoyed this one and wouldn't necessarily consider it to be true horror, but it's more of a sci-fi thriller with some horror elements to it. It is made by Blumhouse, and this is the directorial debut for Winnell, who also wrote this. Thought that we have a solid concept, and the execution is good for the most part. I like the ending, even though some of them are a bit obvious. The editing of this was good in building the tension to that climax. Thought the acting was good across the board. I didn't really have any issues there. The effects were solid, and the sound design helped to what they were going for. I don't think this is going to be for everyone, but I loved seeing the issues they bring up with technology and the dangers of it. I would recommend seeing this for horror and non-horror fans alike, though, if what I said here ticks boxes. And I think this is fun with a good story about it. So my rating here for Upgrade is an 8 out of 10. And what I'm going to go ahead and do now is get you over to the trailer of my first featured review.
Doors locked. Doors unlocked. Three attacks so far. Do you have a gun? I'm Sydney Prescott, of course I have a gun. Something about this one just feels different. Samantha? I'm I know who you are. I've been through this a lot. This is your life now, which means that whoever this is is gonna keep coming for you. You ready? For this? There are certain rules to surviving. The attacks were all on people related to the original killers. Whatever his link is to our past, it's pulled us all back here. And I won't sleep until he's in the ground. for my first featured review on this episode is going to be Scream. This is the new one here in 2022. This was directed by Matt Bantanelli-Olpin and Tyler Gillette. This was written between James Vanderbilt and Guy Busick. And then the characters created by Kevin Williamson. This stars Nev Campbell, Courtney Cox, and David Arquette. While also featuring Melissa Barra, Marley Shelton, Jenna Ortega, Dylan Minetti, Jack Quaid, Jasmine Savoy Brown, Sonia Amar, Mikey Madison, Mason Gooding, Kyle Gallner, Reggie Conquest, Chester Tam, Sarah Elizabeth Ezel, Clayton Frank, and Boomer Mays. And this also features Roger Jackson doing the voice once more. This is a horror mystery thriller film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 7.6 on IMDb and a 3.8 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being 25 years after the original series of murders in Woodsboro, a new ghost face emerges and Sidney Prescott must return to uncover the truth. So this movie that I was interesting to me. Now I heard they were doing it, I wasn't shocked, but I wasn't all that excited about it either. Wes Craven had passed away, who was behind all the movies in the series, and it's a franchise that I enjoy, though. I don't think there's a bad one thus far. It just felt like the last one would be hard to top, and there wasn't a lot more you could do with the franchise. Regardless, though, Jamie and I went to see this one on opening night. So before I get into the movie itself, let me do some notes on some of the key players, and I'll start with our directors. And the first one will be Bentinelli Olpin. He has nine credits, and I've seen four. Eight are in the horror genre. His first feature was a short in VHS. He followed it with Devil's Due, which I haven't seen. Now, since then, he's worked on Southbound, Ready or Not, and now this, and I've seen all of those. He does have a new project coming out called Reunion, and everything that I've seen from him is in the horror genre. And then his co-director of Gillette has three credits. In horror, he has two. The first was a short with Bentinelli Open, so this is his only horror feature, and this is the only thing that I've seen. 
of our writers here. One of them is Vanderbilt, who has 15 credits, and I've seen eight. Out of genre, he's done Zodiac, The Amazing Spider-Man 1 and 2, and Independence Day Resurgence. In genre, he has two with Darkness Falls, A Guilty Pleasure of Mine, and now this one here. Busick is the other writer, and he has five credits. He previously worked with Bentinelli Olpin on Ready or Not, and now this one here. They also look to be joining again for Reunion. Other than that, it does look like he has something called Urge that I've never heard of, and then the upcoming Final Destination 6. Then to our actors. First will be Campbell. She has 53 credits. I've seen eight of her movies. So out of genre, I've seen Wild Things. Now in genre, she also has eight, and I've seen seven. Her first was an odd little Canadian film called The Dark. She followed that with The Craft before the five Scream movies, and she's also been in a documentary Going to Pieces, The Rise and Fall of the Slasher film, which I've never heard of. Next will be Cox. She has 41 movies that she's been in. Of them, I've seen 10. Out of genre, I've seen Ace Ventura, Pet Detective, The Longest Yard, and Masters of the Universe from 1987. In genre, she has six. Outside of all the Scream movies, she was in The Tripper that David Arquette directed. So then I'll go to him next, who has 102 credits. I've seen 16. Out of genre, I've seen him in Never Been Kissed, Entourage, and Ready to Rumble. In genre, he has 17, and I've seen 13 of them. His first was Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which is a childhood favorite of mine. Aside from the Scream movies, he was also in Ravenous, Eight-Legged Freaks, Riding the Bullet, The Tripper, and Bone Tomahawk that I've seen. And I've also seen him in like Spree and 12-Hour Shift. So then for this movie here, we started off like the original one. Now we have Tara Carpenter, portrayed by Ortega, is making something in her kitchen while texting her friend of Amber. The landline rings from an unknown caller and she ignores it. It rings again and this time she answers. She believes the caller is looking for her mother and Tara pries a bit, picking up on certain things being said. This quickly changes to something scary when the voice belongs to Roger Jackson. The voice on the phone wants to play a game. The stakes are that Tara answers three questions correctly about the Stab movies, and our killer won't kill her friend of Amber, portrayed by Madison. There's a bit of a trick with the last one, since Tara isn't versed in the Stab movies, and then she is actually attacked. Tara survives, though. She's in the hospital, and her friend Wes, portrayed by Minetti, contacts sister of Sam, portrayed by Bara, to let her know what happened. Now, Sam is estranged from her family and living in a different city. She at once agrees to come home. Her boyfriend of Richie Kirsch, portrayed by Quaid, agrees to come with her. After Sam and another person are attacked, leaving that victim dead, she seeks out the help of Dewey Riley, portrayed by Arquette. He's paid a heavy toll over the years, and he is no longer the sheriff. He refuses when telling them he's given too much already. Sam then seeks out the niece and nephew of Randy Meeks, you know, the Jamie Kennedy character. Now, they are Mindy, portrayed by Brown, and Chad, portrayed by Gooding. They get together with her other friends of Amber, Wes, and Liv, portrayed by Amar, to figure out what is going on here. It is here that Mindy points out fans were upset about Stab 8 and how this attack on Woodsboro is a requel. Or, you know, making a remake sequel of the original movie. This changes a lot of the rules and everyone is a suspect. Now, as more victims are claimed and no one is safe, Sam must decide to come to terms with a secret from her past. And then this is also kind of the same thing that Sydney and Gail Weathers Riley, portrayed by Cox, are alerted to that is, you know, happening. They must make a similar choice to stay away or jump right back into the same nightmare they've lived through so many times before. So that's where I'm going to leave my recap as Ev was writing this the day after seeing it on opening night. Looking at the rating on the IMDb page and hearing some buzz through horror movie podcast chats that I'm in, people are enjoying this movie early on. 
I will say that I did like what they're doing here, but I also have some issues with the movie as well. And I'll start, though, with the positives. For me, the movie was good. I wasn't a big fan of the third movie in the series, and I thought that 4 did some good things to kind of write the franchise for me. Now, with this one, they seem to be panning that earlier one by taking digs at it through Stab 8 in this movie. They are poking fun at movies like Halloween 2018, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and Candyman for making this movie dubbed, you know, being a requel, all the while doing the same exact thing. This franchise is known for its meta approach to what it's doing. I think this is smart, but I also think the movie isn't as smart as it thinks it is. It went too far with things that it was doing for me here to be fully on board. This movie is also poking fun at fandom and some of the buzzwords like elevated horror. I think this movie to an extent, and it works, but I think again that it goes too far to make sure that we know how smart this movie is being with what they're expecting. What I will say though is that the slasher elements here are good. We get some brutal deaths that look good, and I'm thinking that they're getting practical effects here mixed with CGI, and I'll be honest, I didn't have any issues here. The movie also points out even legacy characters aren't safe. That was one of my biggest gripes with the last movie and its protection of Sydney. I'm not going to spoil what happens here, but I will say is that I thought any of the characters could die, and I enjoy what they're doing there. That was a bit of a positive for me. Something that I did have a problem with, though, is that this movie has too many characters. As I was saying with requels, they had to bring back the legacy characters of Sidney, Gale, Dewey, and even to an extent, Judy Hicks. I thought they all worked them all well into the story, and I thought that was solid. We even have connections to our new characters. Wes is the son of Judy. Mindy and Chad are the niece and nephew of Randy. And we also get a connection with the character of Vince Schneider, portrayed by Gallner. Now, Billy Loomis also has a tie-in. I think that all of this was done well. My problem becomes that we get introduced to our new characters, and they disappear for a long stretch of the movie until they get back to the climax. This movie is running almost two hours, and for a slasher, even ones as smart as the Scream movies think that they are, we can't go too much longer. I understand what they're trying to do here, I just don't think it comes together as well as they wanted to for me. So in the last part of the story I'll go into is that I love that this movie doesn't violate continuity. We keep building on things and adding them without necessarily ruining things that have previously happened. Sometimes things get, you know, stretch my logic, but in the grand scheme, none of them are cheats. What they do here works for me. Referencing back to the original, I was fine with, so I'll give credit there. And we're also keeping with the concept and premise that this series is known for. That is something else I enjoyed. There is one reveal that I saw coming, as did Jamie. She pointed out to me in the cinema, and I agreed with her that this does hurt it slightly there. Now, to move away from the story, I think I'll go to the acting. Campbell was good once again as Sydney. I think that she isn't a focus and is pushed more to a side character here. If they so decide to continue making movies, we now have someone that can take the lead here. Cox was also fine as Gale and Arquette was solid as Dewey. I do like that they're showing the physical and psychological effects of what has happened to him in the earlier four movies. They have some issues in the past with this, but this one did take care there. I do like Baria as well. She feels like Sydney in the original where she has her own past and she needs to come to terms with it. This includes reconciling with her sister of Tara. So I thought Ortega was good there. Minetti, Brown, Amar, Madison, and Goody are all solid as the friend group. I also like bringing back Shelton. Quaid and Gallner are both good. I do wish we would have gotten more of Gallner. I think he's an underrated actor that I like. Overall, despite my issues with the lack of some characters throughout, the acting was good. Then to finish this off, I will go to the cinematography and the soundtrack. For the former, I did think that it was shot well. We are using technology to make the opening sequence different, which I liked. And we also get an interesting shot with a cell phone camera at one point. 
I like the POV shots. There were no issues there, and I think it looks great. As for the soundtrack, it works with what they needed. We get an iconic scene for a death sequence in this movie. None of the rest stood out, but I had no issues there either. So there's a lot of trivia on the IMDb page, so I'm not going to do it all, but there was some that kind of pointed out to me. Didn't realize that David Arquette, who is a certified Bob Ross painting instructor, taught several cast members how to paint like him during filming breaks. Spyglass did make sure that they could get the original mask for Scream 5. This is the first one since Wes Craven's passing, R.I.P. Arquette said he was excited to regrow his now famous mustache for his role as Dewey. Dylan Minetti's character being named Wes is likely an homage. They were trying to get Samara Weaving here, but they couldn't get her to be casted due to scheduling conflicts. Like previous films, they made sure that they got Robert L. Jackson once more. And then the last thing I'm going to do here is screenwriter James Vanderbilt's wife's name is Amber Freeman, which is a name of a character in this movie as well. So in conclusion here, I think this is a sequel that does some good things. I like the elements being a slasher sequel. We are getting enough deaths that I never got bored. And I do think that the movie believes it is smarter than what it is. And it annoyed me at times, if I'm going to be honest. I'm glad that not all the characters feel safe. The acting was good, but I don't know if they handled using them all as well as they could. Effects were good. The use of technology was as well. Cinematography and soundtrack were both solid for what they needed. Despite my issues, I found this to be an above-average movie. I had too many issues with the concept and the story to go higher. And then Jamie also wanted me to say that there's some really cringeworthy and cheesy moments, but she still, on the whole, enjoyed it as well. So my rating here for Scream 2022 is going to be a 6.5 out of 10. Since it is so new, I'm not going to do a spoiler section, so let me get you over to the trailer of my second featured review. this supposed to be? <laughs> Looks sort of like a Parcheesi game or something. I know what this is. I mean, I've never seen one like this before. It's a Ouija board. Well, how do you play? Don't you need dice or something? You don't play. The Ouija board is a tool for communication. Communication with who? The dead. And for my second featured review is going to be Spookies. This is from 1986. 
This was directed by Jeannie Joseph, and then it looks like there's footage from an unfinished film of Twisted Stoles that was directed by Thomas Doran and Brandon Faulkner. Now, the writing credits here, the screenplay of Twisted Souls was written by Doran, Frank M. Farrell, and Faulkner, and then additional material was written by Anne Burgund. Now, this stars... Felix Ward, Maria Pukakis, and Dan Scott, while also featuring Alec Nemzer, A.J. Lowenthal, Pat Wesley Bryan, Peter Dane, Nick Goynton, Lisa Friedy, Joan Ellen Delaney, Peter Iasol Jr., Kim Merrill, Charlotte Alexandra, Anthony Velbiro, Supak. Al Magliocetti, James N. Glenn, and Gabriel Bartolos. This is a comedy horror film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 5.0 on IMDb and a 2.7 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being a wicked sorcerer tries to sacrifice a group of people inside his house with the intention of using their vitality to keep his wife alive. So this is a movie that I'll be honest, I had never heard of until getting into horror movie podcasts. What is interesting is that I think most everyone started talking about this one, and at first it was how bad it was. It appears that Vinegar Syndrome did a restoration for it, and then fans came out of the woodwork. This is another one that the randomizers selected, so I'm finally ticking it off my list of you know movies I had never seen before. So then, I'm going to do some featured notes first on some of the key players here. And I'll start off with our directors. The first will be Joseph, as they have two credits. This was their first, and they followed it with Invasion of the Mindbenders. Now, I haven't heard of this other movie. This was Doran's only film that they ever did. Faulkner has two credits, and the other one is Non-Vegetarian Zombies from Outer Space. I haven't heard of that movie either. And then as a writer, Joseph has two credits, and they're the same that they were as a director. This is Doran's, once again, only writing credit. Faulkner has the same two as well that he did as a director. And the only writing credit for Farrell, and the same for Burgund. Now, as for the cast, this was Ward's only acting credit. Pikakis was introduced here. Now, she has six films total, four in the horror genre with Blood Dreams from 1991, Valerie, and Do You Like Women? Oddly enough, every one of these movies, or at least the last three, were done with Debbie Roshan. And this is the only thing that I've ever seen Pukakis in. And the last actor I'll look at is Scott. He has two credits. This was the only horror film that they've done and the only one that I have seen as well. So then, to get into the movie itself, we start in a graveyard. There is a grave that is chained shut and it's pulsating. We then shift over to meet who I'm assuming is Creon, portrayed by Ward. I don't recall his name ever being stated, but he is talking to a coffin. Inside, we learn is his wife of Isabel, portrayed by Pukakis, and he is setting up a ritual to bring her back to life. Then the movie then introduces us to our other characters. There is Billy, portrayed by Nesmer, who is running away from home when his parents forgot his 13th birthday. He meets a drifter, portrayed by Brian, and Creon's servant of Scott. I believe at some point this servant is called Kitty, but he is a creature of sorts. We then get two cars of people that are driving along a road with woods on either side. One is driven by Duke, portrayed by Gionta. And he is with his girlfriend of Linda, portrayed by Delaney. Also in the car with them is their friend Rich, portrayed by Asillo. Now, he is odd and has a puppet that he messes with, you know, throughout the movie. 
Now, the other car is driven by Peter, portrayed by Dane, and then with him is his girlfriend of Megan, portrayed by Meryl. With them also is Carol, portrayed by Freedy, Adrian, portrayed by Alexandra, Dave, portrayed by Velbiro, and then Louis, portrayed by Megliochetti. They were at a party, but they were kicked out as Duke is a hothead. They are now looking for somewhere else to go. Billy, along with these other two groups, end up at the abandoned house by a cemetery. It is run down, but do thinks it'd be perfect to have, you know, what they're looking for here to have a party. What they don't realize is that Creon is summoning them there as victims for his ritual. They discover a spirit board that possesses Carol. It becomes a fight a survival as they meet different monsters and creatures as they try to make it through the night. So that's where I'm going to leave my recap here is that sets up most of what we're getting. Up until this point, I was with the movie to be honest. I was getting Evil Dead vibes, but that wasn't as a much of a problem as movies are constantly using ones that came before it while doing their own thing. The problem that I had here was that this one goes off the rails at this point and I became lost. Before I started to break down different parts, I'm not shocked to see that this was originally a movie called Twisted Souls. It appears that a producer had the rights, stepped in, had more footage shot, and then spliced it in to create the movie that we got here. There are things that are happening that feel disjointed. The stories we are getting are missing pieces, and then the editing is abrupt. I am curious now to read about or see what the original idea for the movie was, and to see if that would have been better than what we got here. So circling back though, I'll go back to what we got here first. I was interested to see what Creon's plan was and where they're going to take it. His love Isabel is dead. He needs souls to bring her back to life. He has a servant helping him and they also have a son of Corda portrayed by Lowenthal. They possess Carol once those groups arrive to help kill off the others that are there. There's a wrinkle that Isabel may have killed herself as she did not love Creon. He wants to bring her back regardless of what she wants. I think there is something here that could have been fleshed out a bit more and be interesting. To add to this, Creon is looking at this like a game of chess. He is directing his victims to different rooms, and there is something else that I'm on board with as well. The problem then becomes that we have scenes that are together but don't fit. Billy is given a bit of a backstory, but his line goes nowhere. He meets a drifter, but then he is killed. Creon's servant is stalking Billy, but why? We never get any more there. Then we have this group of people that arrive at the house. They make horrible decisions, which I can work with. Peter and those with him start to investigate trying to solve what is going on here with this ritual, but they never come back to it. And they never find an answer. We also don't get an ending to them either. There are things that are introduced and it's never resolved and that's an issue. So what I'm willing to say here though is I do enjoy Italian cinema. This feels like they're paying homage there and using nightmare logic. My problem though is there's just too many holes here to explain. So I'll move from that and I'll go to what I thought was the best part of this movie, which are the effects. We get some cool looking creatures here. I don't mind the makeup of the servant or Corda. There are some ghouly looking creatures as well. We also have a spider woman portrayed by Peck and a grim reaper guy of Glenn. Now there are quite a few zombies that we get. I had some slight issues with practical effects that looked fake. Nothing to ruin the movie though. And we also get some early computer effects that were fine as well. Now to move this to the acting, I think for the most part it's fine. Ward works as this menacing sorcerer who's our main villain. Picacus is solid enough as his love interest that doesn't feel it back. Scott works as a servant. Nemzer is okay as Billy and the drifter that spooks him is about the same. Lowenthal was fine as Corda. I don't think the acting was bad as a group of friends that show up. No one is great but many of them are just playing caricatures. I do think that the writing probably didn't help here either. I will give credit to Piek, Glenn, and all those that played monsters or zombies. I thought they all worked for what was needed there as well. 
And then I also next go to then cinematography and the soundtrack. For the former, I think it's fine. The camera work didn't blow me away. As for the soundtrack, I think we get some good atmospheric music. The opening song worked for me. There were some sound effects that don't fit as they kind of go comedy with some of it. And we also get some music that didn't work for me with what they were doing with it either. This doesn't ruin the movie, but a couple times it took me out of what they were trying to do there. So then before I close out this review, let me do a little bit of trivia here. As the executive producer, Lee, who is the one that kind of messes up a lot of things, he had the idea for the muck men to make farting noises. The director and the rest of the production crew hated it. This started out as Twisted Souls. It finished production and then the editing stage when creative and legal issues ensued. The financial backer then hired a new director as well as editor who cut out scenes that were filmed, inserted newly shot footage several months later on at the same location with different actors. The rumor was that the film was composed of two different completely unrelated and unfinished films is not true. Well-known underground comic book artist of Corbin created the poster art and video box. It appears that this house that they shot it in was actually the boyhood home of John Jay. Now, he was the Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court and writer of the Federalist Papers. It appears that they were trying to give this set over to allow this film crew to destroy it pretty much so they could tear it down. What they end up doing end up saving it, and it's now a national historical site. Lee was the one who was hated by the original directors and production crew, and I guess they insult him in interviews and appearances even to today. This was Pekakis's first film, as I said. She was going to be totally nude or topless by the creatures in the last scene as she ran from them. She had no problem doing this, but Lee wouldn't pay her the money she wanted, so she kept her clothes on. She went on to appear nude in every other film she made after this. This is Kim Merrill's film debut as well. And it's kind of interesting is that Pekakis's husband is Jay Lind. Now... This is the only movie that she wasn't nude in and was not directed by him as well. So then in conclusion here, this movie has some good elements and some that not so much. I think they have a good setup. If they would have stuck with that story, this movie could have had potential to be better than what it was. The changes that made her the product and it's disjointed. I will give them credit to the effects though. Only slight issues there. Same for the soundtrack and design of the movie. The acting I thought was decent overall. I can be forgiving with some of the stuff with Nightmare Logic, but there's just too many issues to explain it all away. For me, this is an average movie. It's pretty equal on both sides for the good and the bad. So my rating here for Spookies is going to be a 5 out of 10. Not going to do a spoiler section as I don't really think I need that. So I'm going to go ahead and get you over to a very brief break before I close out the show. I would like to thank you for listening to episode 116 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. And then if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can send me any sort of feedback or anything that you'd like to have right on the show, and you can send that to journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. If you'd like to read any reviews from anything on this episode or the past episodes, that's Reviews of the Dead, and that's horrorreview.webnode.com. If you'd like to become friends with me on Facebook, I'm David Michigan Garrett Jr. On Twitter, I'm Buckeye from Mish. Letterboxd, I'm David OSU. And over there, I'll be posting any of the movie reviews that I have done of horror or non-horror alike. If you'd like to follow my Instagram page, that's davidosu87. And the Journey with a Cinephile Instagram is Journey with a Cinephile, all one word. Over on both of those, I'll be posting any of the movie posters or anything that I have watched. And then, you know, my personal account every now and then I will share, you know, some things that I'm doing in my personal life. And then just to make it easier on you, I'll have all of those links in the show notes. 
And then the last thing I'd ask you to do that if you could, go ahead and hit subscribe so you never miss a new episode on whatever podcasting device you're listening to me on. And then if you're also able to rate and review just so I can figure out what I'm doing that you like and what I'm doing that you don't like, as well as to get out to more listeners out there as well. So then for the next episode for you, I'm going to be having my last of these new year new movies as I'm going to be watching the randomizer pulled up a giallo from Lamberto Baba from 1987 of Delirium. I actually just bought a copy of it and I have it coming on its way. And then I'm also going to be watching here from, it's a 2021 film, but it looks like it was only at a film festival, but it's getting its wide release here in 2022. I think it's on Netflix of The Wasteland. Give a shout out to Tim as I found that on his list of watches for this year. And then I'm also going to be doing my first rewatch for 1942 of Cat People. And then, of course, I'll also have, you know, some mini reviews on top of that as well for you. So I don't think there's anything else that I need to get you up to speed with here. So what I will say then in closing is that whatever you do today, I hope you're safe and doing it. Have a great time out there. This is your tour guide of David Garrett Jr. And I am signing off. It had been a wonderful evening. And what I needed now to give it the perfect ending 